Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Hello and welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. On today's show, you'll hear the Poppygate Report with Glenn Greenway. We'll hear from Mr. Phil Jackson and the Black Perspective on the Drug War. And you'll get a chance to name that drug by its side effects. But first, our guest for this program, renowned San Francisco attorney, Tony Serra. Once again, we're uh, lucky, I think, to have with us uh, a voice of reason, a man who spent uh, decades examining the policy of drug war. We're talking about Mr. Tony Serra. Welcome to our show, sir. Thank you uh, very much. I think this is the second time, Dean, that I've... uh been asked to talk, and it's my privilege. Yes, sir. There's some uh, breaking news. Just this past Tuesday, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that uh, the use of ayahuasca by a uh, religious group here in the United States was a legitimate thing. Uh, Tell us about your perceptions on that. All right. Uh, You're absolutely right. February 21st, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled, and one of the uh, positive images is that the decision was written uh, by Roberts, uh, you know, recently appointed by the Bush administration, and I don't know whether it's emblematic of his, um, you know, state of mind toward uh, drug wars or any broader issues, but I view that in itself uh, somewhat of a symbolic victory. The case is uh, called uh, El Alberto Gonzalez, but Attorney General versus, and, and I may mispronounce it, but Centro Esperita Beneficente Unario do Vegetal. And what it uh, pertains to, what that name pertains to, is a religious uh, sect that has its origins in the Amazon region that uses uh, a tea which they consider a sacramental tea to receive communion. The court uses that word. It's analogous, I think, to Catholicism. And the tea uh, contains uh, two uh, plant elements, uh, one of which contains the prohibited drug DMT, which is a powerful hallucinogenic. This group in the United States, which is an extension of a much larger group in the Amazon Basin, consists of merely 130 members. The tea was brewed in the Amazon basin with respect to this case, and it was sent in large drums to the leaders of this religious sect in the United States. 
three of the drums were intercepted, analyzed, and the group was, uh, how would I say, investigated and on the verge of being prosecuted. They ascertained that in the past, 14 drums had been received. The group taking wisely the initiative sought an injunction uh, to enjoin the federal government from interfering with their reception of the sacramental tea, which one component is DMT, and to allow it in their religion. So it's something that was initiated at a civil level, much like race in the marijuana field. And what occurred is all the way up, that is the District Court and the Court of Appeal and the U.S. Supreme Court, in essence, you know, from using the metaphor, they, they, they slapped the face of the prosecution. The findings, you know, the, the issue turned on several things. The issue uh, really relies on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, where, in essence, the government is prohibited from placing unrequired uh, burden on practice of religion. So because of that act, thank God because of that act, they uh, have prevailed with the injunction. So the issue turned on, on several things, and, and findings were made. There's a balancing act, so they had a hearing. And both sides presented evidence at the trial court level. And the three contentions of government is that the DMT in the tea posed health risk to the constituency of the religion. And two, there was a potential for diversion of the tea uh, for recreational usages and three, it violated an international treaty with respect to the importation uh, by the United States and other countries uh, of this DMT drug. What the trial court found, and this is a lot of discussion is about it, is that with the main two, the health risk and the potential for diversion, the evidence was balanced. DMT was uh, thought to be uh, you know serious with regard to health adverse uh, health reactions cardiac uh, irregularities psychotic reactions and of course the other side you know showed how that could be mitigated and that was really a very small amount of the DMT and the T etc and then the potential for diversion, well, they said, no, that can be regulated by issuing a permit, and if they exceed the bounds of the permit to import, why, then they could withdraw the permit. So that was a wonderful thing, because in this area, traditionally, the findings of the court is that the dangers of the drug the potentiality for the version of the drug, even with, you know, a religious use, precludes, you know, the legitimizing of it for religious purposes. So that was a wonderful thing. 
The government also argued, and it's been a compelling argument up to this point, and that's why this case has uh, you know, good meaning for us who practice in the field. They argued that, in essence, the Schedule One classification of DMT, in essence, could not be broken. There could not be any exceptions ever to the scheduling. It had to go back, in essence, to the legislation. And this, you know, and they cite the marijuana case, Raich. I'll read, the government contends that the act's description of a Schedule One substance as having a high potential for abuse, no currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States, and a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision by itself precludes any consideration of individualized exceptions, such as sought by the UTV, which is this religious group. Well, that normally is a governmental shield. Sorry, friends, it's in Schedule 1, like marijuana, and therefore, you know, we have impenetrable shield, so to speak, and they cite race. The government signed the race, and wherein that theory prevailed. And thankfully, they say, in essence, they are, the, 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 uh, the Supreme Court argues, that's a bunch of baloney. There has been exceptions previously, and they talk about the peyote exception, which is a Schedule One, and that there is masculine in peyote, and that now, because of the passage and then the cases that came after the passage of the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and I'm quoting, hundreds of thousands of Native Americans uh, practicing their faith can use uh, the masculine in peyote. And therefore, they use that as a guiding light with respect to the penetration of the shield, which you know, thus far, but for the peyote, has been uh, sufficient to block religious claims. Uh, for marijuana users like Rastafarians. So what they said is that we reaffirm the feasibility of a case-by-case consideration of religious religious exemptions. So in two big areas, this is a beacon of light for those persons who claim and there's, you know, hundreds of thousands historically, probably tens of thousands in India, and many, many, you know, thousands in the United States who claim marijuana is part of their religious sacramental ceremony. And, you know, specifically the Rastas, and that's why we're talking, because I have a Rasta minister who in California grows marijuana for the ministry and distributes it in sacramental usage to the members. So this case here is very significant for us because if there was just race, we probably wouldn't have an opportunity to present that issue 
to the court. They would say, sorry, schedule one goodbye, you know, ultimately, either the trial level or the pellet level. And so with this case, we believe strongly, and, you know, Reverend uh, Lepp and Reverend Brown, who's also a religious uh, use uh, advocate, uh, uh, practically danced, you know, in the aisle. They're they're clapping and applauding. They want to go to trial, you know, immediately in the Lepp case because we'll at least get access to the jury. But mind you, this case is very guarded, and it's limited to the facts. A small sect, 130 members... The tea is brewed down in the Amazon and sent as tea. Not at, they make a distinction between plant material and tea at one level. And of course, at another level, there's no distinction because the DMT is a component of the tea. But uh, other courts and juries may well see a distinction between the utilization of marijuana by, and I'm talking sacramental, by a, uh, 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 what would we call it, a potentially large number of church members. The Rastafarian is much, much broader and, and uh, more, you know, uh, overwhelming, let's just say, in, in their practice than the, this very small group who uses the tea for sacramental usage. And, and they, they signaled what juries would probably have to decide. They say, one, sacramental usage to receive communion. Well, that fits Rastas. Sincere exercise of religion. That fits Rastas. Then they call, they say, small American branch of the sect. That does not fit Rastas. But those are factual issues. So why we, you know, here in California and San Francisco, because we have this Lep case coming up, where he grew thousands of plants, because his ministry was very large. His ministry at one time contained 6,000 members. So, you know, the government wants to say, well, that, you know, is, they're going to try to distinguish it. This is large scale. This was small. What did they really do here? The government's going to say, well, they allowed them to import tea for sacramental use under government permit system. They'll argue, well, that's not what's happening here. This is a church growing, you know, marijuana as a sacrament. That, you know. But nonetheless, that argument will go to a jury. And so in a sense, as we all know and hope, the jury is the collective conscience of a community. Now, we have a very enlightened community in San Francisco with respect to religious use of marijuana. So we think that in the Lepp case, he being a Rastafarian minister, using sacramentally for communion marijuana in a sincere church ceremony, we think that the jurors will see that this is an issue of religious freedom and not believe, as the government's going to argue, that it is a, you know, a method of diversion, that, the, you know, this is a way to grow and distribute and get high, and, and they're going to try to belittle it. They'll, they'll even suggest he's making money on it, which he, which he is not. But th those are questions of fact. 
So just summing it up, although the case is very confined factually, very restricted, and they don't talk at all about marijuana or any other drug than the peyote, which has been allowed, nonetheless, it gives an avenue to juries for religious use in marijuana, and therefore it is the chink in the armor of a government with respect to marijuana that for 40 years has put its head in the sand like an ostrich. So this is the first bit of oxygen, let's pretend, that has come out of this submerged, you know, willful ignorance of government. Because government will persist with marijuana like they did here. There's no medical use. There's a great potentiality for abuse that it can't be regulated. You know, there's scheduling one issue. And, you know, this case took DMT for purpose of religious use out of Schedule 1, and that's obviously what we're going to try to do with marijuana. Mr. Sarah, you spoke of the uh, Native American use, uh, hundreds of thousands of members using uh, mescaline, and yes. yet no ill effects are suffered therefrom. And, and I, I know it's not factual. It's not something that can be submitted in a courtroom, but I find it extremely irritating that the fact that there is no death, no destruction from the use of even mescaline, let alone marijuana, and that it can't be presented in a courtroom. I, how, I think that's what drives many of us out here in the trenches of uh, drug reform, is just the irrationality of the... Uh, no, it's a campaign of deceit. Yes, sir. In the United States, you know, in many dimensions, especially presently, uh, how would I say it? They spin it politically the way they want to spin it, and they will play hide-and-seek with statistics and with facts. So this is an instance where federal government, and, you know, I, I uh, will point directly that the DEA uh, have uh, willfully failed to perform the necessary experiments and, you know, gather the necessary statistic and consult with the necessary experts to enlighten themselves. Some are, and some are just lying, but, you know, the others, let's pretend they're in good faith, to enlighten themselves as to the medical efficacy of marijuana. So they persist in saying, oh, well, it's Schedule 1. The legislature found there was no medical usage. And that argument's been, it's worked now for 40 years. At one point and I think it was in the 80s, their own DEA administrative judge ruled otherwise, that it was medically you know, efficacious marijuana for a number of ailments, and they buried that and they never followed it. They didn't follow their own administrative proceedings. So it's been a willful campaign of ignorance and deceit. Cases like this crack the door open. What cracks the door open is when states adopt medical marijuana legislations, 11 of which have. What cracks the door open is when we learn that in England and in Holland and, you know, in Germany and in Switzerland and South American countries, they are all decriminalizing marijuana. Canadian Parliament, you know, had held hearings on it and decriminalized to a great extent, marijuana. So, you know, they can't insulate us 
you know the majority and they can't insulate the, our government you know completely from the truth they've they've done it for 40 years but the you know the history of medical marijuana like the history of aspirin it's been a wonder drug for 3000 uh, years and and it's absurd to put it in schedule 1 that recognize no no medical use our friends uh, Dr. Tom O'Connell Dr. Todd Micaria yes often talk of uh, perhaps a return to 1913 or, or prior to the 1937 Tax Act on marijuana when medical marijuana was a valid, legitimate medicine. And that uh, people talk about the need for studies. We could just look back in history 75 or 100 years for our answer. Is that How do you feel about that? Well, a great deal of knowledge uh, occurred, let's just say, historically, at the turn of the century, and then it's been kind of blanked out since then. But we have submitted briefs, they call them Brandeis briefs, because you cite to psychological, sociological uh, uh, material. And normally the law doesn't like when you do a brief for, you know, to go into extraneous material, but there's a theme that Justice Brandeis gave to law which allows it. So we've cited all the recent studies. Uh, we're trying to reclassify it, Schedule 1, and we're preparing, you know, to go up to the higher court. And, frankly, it's about eight inches high, the various studies. Now, they're not from the United States, because the United States forbade them. You know, like willful, I call that the willful ignorance aspect of, of the government. But there are studies from Canada and Europe uh, for the most part, and uh, they, and I think uh, some from South America, as I recall, and they attest to the validity, you know, of the medical efficacy. So uh, using historically what has been available and augmenting that with present studies and, you know, expertise that is available outside the United States, and, that, and there's notable figures in the United States, as, as you just named too, um, I think, you know, in the near future, the attack on the scheduling, marijuana being Schedule One, you know, will prevail because we have the material. As I sit here today, we have motions on this issue, the scheduling issue, with all of the supplements that I've talked about, the exhibits, the medical and scientific studies and the expertise opinions from all over the world. We have them sitting in federal court in Fresno, federal court in Sacramento, and in three cases, federal court in San Francisco. Now, the, many of these cases get resolved, so there's no appeal. Maybe some of these courts will rule in our favor because of this new case involving DMT, you know, sacramental use. Uh, but the Ninth Circuit will certainly get one of these cases, and that could turn the tide. And if the Ninth Circuit doesn't turn it well, then we'll get to the Supreme Court with it. And if, <laughs> if Roberts at all, you know, have the same religious, uh, what would I call it, you know, uh, 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 perspective as they showed in this case, why um, it could, it, the, the scheduling issue and, and the, the medical use and the religious use uh, could, uh, you know, open 
widely. So that's, that's what we're trying to do, and that's our best hope. And now another black perspective on the drug war. Prohibition's got to go, for my Bible tells me so. One thing about black folks, we sure are a God-fearing people, which is why the black church figures so prominently in black leadership today. So, what does the Bible have to say about marijuana? Plenty. And I'm going to quote you chapter and verse, so get out your Bible and read along. Genesis, chapter 1, verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. Notice, it says every herb, not just some. Oh, but doesn't the Bible teach us to abstain from things like drugs? Well, let's turn to Acts 15th chapter, verse 28. There we see that only four things are prohibited. Meats offered to idols, blood, things that are strangled, and fornication. Marijuana is not on the list. But marijuana prohibition is addressed in the Bible in 1 Timothy 4th chapter. And it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Well, that sure sounds like the drug war to me. Oh, prohibition's got to go, for my Bible tells me so. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. It's time to play Name That Drug by Its Side Effects. Persistent diarrhea, stomach upset, nausea and vomiting, bloody urine, fever, unusual bleeding, yellow eyes or skin, unusual tiredness or weakness, pseudomembranous colitis, dizziness, trouble breathing, and congestive heart failure. Time's up. The answer, penicillin, another FDA-approved product. We don't have an official government truth this week from Winston Francis, so the following will have to suffice. I got a new god now. <laughs> Poppygate. Bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin. Featuring Glenn Greenway. Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, Ann Patterson, memorably informed a Washington press briefing this week that, quote, Colombia is paradise next to Afghanistan, end quote. Since the fall of the Taliban and subsequent collapse of their drugs prohibition, Afghan opium production has increased from 185 to 4,200 metric tons annually, an astonishing 2,000-plus percent increase during the four and a half years of U.S. occupation. ABC News reported this week that U.S.-supported Afghan eradication efforts destroyed less than 0.002% of Afghanistan's 2005 poppy crop. Such a small number may be visualized as a single penny discount on a $500 purchase. In other words, a drop in the bucket. Former White House National Policy spokesman Robert Weiner said this week that, quote, the dirty little secret is that we are purposely neglecting the drug issue, end quote, in Afghanistan. He adds that, quote, our inactions effectively leave us as silent partners with the Afghani opium warlords. 
This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. We've got just a second left, and I want to remind any cops or judges, any district attorneys, any agents of the CIA, FBI, DEA, or Justice Department out there listening, that we'll give you $1,200 cash. You can give it to a police benevolence union, whatever you think appropriate. But thus far, all you drug warriors have proven yourselves to be cowards. We also offer $100 to any person on planet Earth willing to write a 250-word essay. Send it in. I'll call you. We record it. We put you on the airwaves, and I write you a check for $100. So far, that's gone unfulfilled as well. In closing, I remind you once again that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag, and I urge you to please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth, the show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of cannabis. <laughs>